That is some good news, is it not? Our God is alive, and because of Jesus, we are alive as well. Giver of every breath I breathe, author of all eternity, giver of every perfect you be the glory, you be the glory, maker of heaven and earth, no one can comprehend your work, over all the universe, you be the glory, and I'm alive. I'm alive because I'm alive in you. And it's one of Jesus, I'm alive. And it's all because the blood of Jesus Christ covers me and raises death Because of Jesus Giver of every breath I breathe Author of all eternity Giver of every perfect thing You be the glory Maker of heaven and heaven No one can comprehend your word over all the new give me the glory. I'm alive. I'm alive because I'm alive in you. And it's all because Jesus died. And it's all because the blood of Jesus died. Oh, it covers me. All because of Jesus. Every sunrise, every sunrise sings your praise. Covers me and raises dead men's eyes. And it's all because of Jesus. Yes, it's all because of Jesus.
have been some really, really cool versions of the Lord's Prayer that have been done through the years. And I love this one in particular. Elsa suggested this one to us. I like it because it's got, uh, I would call it uh, funky. How's that? Funky's good. And it goes like this. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart. Once again. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven. Right here in my heart. Give us. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us. As we forgive the ones who sin against us. Forgive them. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil one. Let your kingdom come. Father, Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. If I can have right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. No doubt in heaven, right here in my heart. But this day I daily bread, forgive us, forgive us, as we forgive the ones who sin against us. Forgive them. Lead us not into temptation, but Let your kingdom come. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. All yours. All yours. The kingdom, the power, the glory are yours. It's yours. It's yours. All yours. All yours. Forever and ever. The kingdom is yours. It's yours. guys. Uh, so um, I've been thinking, I've been praying, I've been reading, actually for quite a while. I've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of praying, a lot of reading about revival. 
And I don't know how any of y'all, uh, anybody been following the Asbury revival or you've heard something about it? Okay, I want to speak to that here a little bit. Uh, it's kind of cool this last week. Apparently a similar revival broke out at Sanford University in southern Alabama. So, uh, so, uh, and what's been going on is there's been just, uh, there, there, I actually listened to the sermon uh, of the young man who preached that morning in chapel uh, at their chapel service. I watched it and... Um, uh, it was about 25 minutes. It was a really a great message based upon Romans chapter 12. And uh, it was just fascinating. He shared a little bit of his own personal testimony. It was woven into it. And uh, he comes from some real brokenness, real pain. And so I think he speaks to people and he speaks to brokenness and he speaks to pain extremely well. But he's uh, seeing him a lot of depth and solid young man, a really sharp guy. And... Um, but I, when I, you know, watched the message, if I hadn't known it was attached to Asbury, I wouldn't think it was like a, you know, I mean, I've heard a lot of good messages through the years by a lot of really fantastic preachers. And uh, so I thought it was really, really good, but it was like I wouldn't have predicted out of that would come some kind of revival. And I don't think really revival comes out of a single sermon or message of a person. I really don't. I think that, that revival is a work of the Spirit, okay? It's a work of the Spirit. Just I want to say that. And sometimes, uh, in, in, in part of the reason why I've been reading, Joy, can you hand me that book, please? Part of the reason why I've been reading about revival and stuff like that is sometimes what people will do is they will read about the experience of a single church somewhere, and they create a paradigm of this is what revival looks like. The truth is, God loves doing a new thing. Did you know that? He does. He loves doing a new thing. The way God's going to work in your life is going to probably look differently from the way it, it does in my life. And that's okay. And that's good. You know, but God loves doing a new thing. He, he really does. And, and, and sometimes what will happen is sometimes people will look and they'll look at one revival movement. Okay, they'll look at maybe the first great awakening, the second great awakening. They may look at uh, the Welsh revival. They may look at uh, the Azusa Street revival. Or they'll look at the Jesus movement in the 1970s. And they'll take this idea of one work of God. And then they try to say, this is the way God always works. And that's not really true. Uh, throughout the Bible, as you read through the Old and New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, you see a lot of different kinds of spiritual renewal movements and revival movements. By the way, it's always followed by decline, just so you're aware of that. It's always followed by decline. This always happens. And this is why we need to always strive in, in, uh, and long for continual renewal in Jesus, I, I believe. And so... But throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been a number of revival movements. Uh, and, and sometimes we in America, we only kind of focus on our own, like the First and Second Great, Great Awakening, things like that. But we need to understand that the movement of the Spirit is not confined to the United States, okay? It's not. And there have been some spectacular revival movements all around the world over the last 2,000 years. And I think there's something to be learned. So what I did was I brought here with me this morning a book called Firefall 2.0. And what it is, is it's a book that's written by two guys, Malcolm McDowell and Alvin Reed. The reason that this book is a good book, it's not the best book, but the reason that this is a good book is it's a really good uh, balance of scholarship, research, research, because I do think you have to really do the legwork. You know, you, you, I'm sorry, you can't be lazy and be theologically sound. You really can't. You gotta do the work. 
What they've done is they've gone through, they've looked at revival movements in the Old Testament, New Testament. It's not that their interpretation is always right. I'm not suggesting that. But then they've also looked at it over the last 2,000 years, and they give you many different examples. So what it, But it's also very accessible. This is not written for seminary students. They might be offended if I said that uh, because they're both seminary professors. Uh, one's at Western Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in in uh, Fort Worth. The other one is at Southern, oh, excuse me, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, in Charlotte, right? Charlotte? Oh, Wake Forest. I knew that. Wake Forest. Um, so anyway, but but the reason I like it is because some, it what it does is it gives you breadth and depth in thinking about revival. Um, the Asbury Revival, um, first of all, revival cannot be controlled. Okay, it can't be. And, and this is why a lot of people resist revival, is sometimes people resist revival because they like predictability. The Holy Spirit is anything but predictable. You know, you know in, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with a religious leader, and when he's talking with this religious leader, he says, um, he says that, that the wind blows wherever it will. Have you ever noticed that about the wind? It's very unpredictable. If you really want to experience this, experience this, go on a bike ride with me. Go on a bike ride with me. You will discover the wind is very predictable. It doesn't always blow in one single direction. Okay? Now, I wish it did. I wish it always blew at my back. Okay? Pushing me forward. Uh, but what you find is that the wind is very unpredictable. And what Jesus says, he says, that's how it is with the Spirit. You know, the wind, you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. It goes wherever it will. And that's the way it is with the Spirit. See, when the Spirit works, it's not controllable. And one thing also to understand is, is you know, when I was a kid, did anybody ever see a bug zapper? You know how bug zappers work? You have this bright light, and the bugs come up. They come to the light. They hit the, the screen and zap. You know, they're, they're zapped, okay? Light attracts bugs, Okay? In every revival movement, whether it's in the Old Testament, the New Testament, or throughout history, there are always a few crazies, okay? The crazies don't define the movement. But the the question is, so how can we know, is this really revival? And I don't think you really know in a week or two weeks. I really don't. But I think you do see evidence of things like this. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. The other thing you'll see is you'll see people who are nominal Christians who all of a sudden discover they're not really true believers at all. They discover that they've kind of embraced a kind of moralism a kind of a moralism, thinking that somehow if I do everything exactly right, then I'm right with God. And the Bible calls that legalism, when you try to do everything exactly right to make yourself right with God. See, see, salvation is a work of grace. And so what happens in revival movements, often you'll see nominal Christians come to know Jesus in a very real way, and they suddenly understand justification at a depth level. They had this incredible awareness 
of the depth of their sin deep down in their soul that's way beyond what you and I can see on the surface. And then they realized that they are accepted and loved by God. And, and they are gloriously saved. Um, you often see nominal Christians saved. You often see it move its way into the greater community where uh, other people are saved. You'll always see, by the way, when I say always, I mean always. There's always there's not just gospel proclamation. There is gospel proclamation. There is a return. There's a return to biblical faithfulness. There's a return to biblical faithfulness. There is that that that, that it's no longer about is this particular doctrine offensive or not. It's about it does it come from God or not. And if it comes from God, that's all that really matters. In in so. We see a return to biblical faithfulness. A great example of this was the Protestant Reformation. And in the understanding of, of justification by faith, that we are saved by uh, faith alone, through grace alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's this, this return to, to biblical faithfulness. And the other thing that you see is you see compassion ministry. Compassion ministry. The poor are no longer marginalized. People on the margins are loved extravagantly. Um, it's People love the people that Jesus loves. Regardless of whether they're black or white, Hispanic or Asian, whether they're Republican or Democrat, no longer matters. Whether they um, have little wealth or much wealth, whether they have much education or little education, these things no longer matter. What really matters is when the people the people you face are people who are people who are loved by Jesus, and the love of Jesus fills us so that we love them too. We don't love them because they think like us, believe like us, act like us, and look like us. We love them because they're loved by God. So that's what happens, I think, when you see revival. So um, I, I, I pray for revival, not because of what's happening in Asbury. I pray for revival because of what I'm thirsty for and what I yearn for right here. See, I, I, I don't know what revival prayer means to you when we announce revival prayer, but it means something to me. It means something to me. It means that I really hunger and yearn for a work of the Spirit. In my life. And I yearn for a work of the Spirit in your life. Where it's no longer just going to church. But it's something profoundly more meaningful than just showing up on a Sunday, listening to a sermon, and maybe lip-syncing with the songs. Um, I pray for revival. Uh, not because I read books. I read the books because I long for revival. 
And because I and, and, and I think it is a work of God. It's a work of the Spirit. It's not something we can control. It's not something predictable. It's not something we can schedule on our calendar and write it in. It's not a series of meetings, although meetings may be all well and good. I I don't think we can bring revival, but I think that there are things we can do to prepare ourselves for revival. And I think that's... um, I'm sorry, I'm preaching a sermon. I'm not supposed to be preaching a sermon. But it's because I'm reading and I'm thinking and I'm writing. Um, I think for there to be revival in my life, and I believe for there to be revival in your life, there has to be, we have to humble ourselves. Now, the truth is, uh, most people don't like humbling themselves. Uh, uh, In fact, a lot of people who are Christians don't like humbling themselves. They don't like saying, I'm wrong, God, you're right. They don't like telling another person, you're right, I'm wrong. Why? Because they're proud. There's no revival. God never revives proud people. I think we have to humble ourselves. I think we have to seek God above all things. I do. I do. I don't think the church can just be something you schedule in on Sunday morning. You don't follow Jesus one hour a week. He has to be the primary thing, not the thing kind of added on. But I I think we have to humble ourselves. I think we have to seek him above all things. I think we have to be willing to repent of bad religion. I think we have to repent of dead religion. Uh, By the way, revive means to bring new life. Uh, We have to repent of dead religion. We have to repent of moralism. We have to repent of religious hypocrisy and of spiritual pride. And we have to repent, be willing to repent of all compromise and rid ourselves of every idol of the heart. You know what an idol is? It's what you love more than Jesus. We have to be willing to repent of every idol of the heart. I think we have to give ourselves to extraordinary prayer. That's not a new phrase with me or Tim Keller. This is something that that you you see all the way back into the scriptures. Uh, the first American to really write about it was Jonathan Edwards. But there has to we have to give ourselves to extraordinary prayer. We have to be filled with the Spirit and empowered by Him. I don't think it's something that can be done mechanically by you and me. We have to be filled with the Spirit. We have to be empowered by Him. I think we have to have worshiping eyes and worship God with worshiping hearts. And what I mean is I mean something like Isaiah chapter 6. By the way, revival isn't always corporate. Oftentimes, revival is very, very personal. It happens with a single person, and it stops there. Not because God is somehow lacking in power to work, but because it's not what the people want, but it's what a person wants perfect example of this is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I, I, I think that for there to be uh, revival, there has to be a yearning in our hearts, a longing for holiness. Not being holier than thou, but longing for holiness. I, I think that we have to be gospel-centered, and not politically driven. By the way, this is the reason, this is the reason, this is the reason that many evangelical churches will not experience revival. 
because they are politically driven instead of gospel-centered. See, the, the gospel is at the center everything the church is supposed to be about and everything that Jesus is about. And when we're driven by something else, then we're no longer centering our lives around Jesus and our energy around Jesus, our praying around Jesus. It has to be gospel-centered, not politically driven. I, I think that, that there can be revival, but I believe, I, I believe it will come when we proclaim the gospel with wisdom, courage, grace, and humility. I think we can prepare ourselves for a revival by loving our neighbor boldly when it's costly and very inconvenient. See, a lot of us like the idea of serving, but we want to put it in this little segment of our calendar. Because our calendar is, is really what's Lord. But it's about really boldly loving our neighbor, our black neighbor, our white neighbor, Asian, Hispanic, Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Loving our neighbor, our Samaritan neighbor, our Jewish neighbor. Um, I think we can prepare ourselves uh, for a revival, but we must be biblically faithful the bible says there's something called truth it's real it's true it's not my truth it's not your truth it is north is not my north it's not your north north is north north doesn't give a rip what your opinion is it doesn't give a rip what my opinion is north is north It is not relative. It does not change from person to person. And truth does not change from person to person. Every single person who walks off this platform will step down. Nobody's going to keep walking through the air off the platform. Gravity is true for me. It's true for you. Spiritual truth is true. It does not change. What the Bible says about money What the Bible says about sex, gender, marriage, family. What the Bible says about race. What the Bible says about caring for creation. Doesn't change if you're a Republican or a Democrat. God does not bend his truth to my opinion or the opinion of any other person. And there has to be a return to biblical faithfulness. I think we can prepare ourselves for revival. And I apologize. I know I'm preaching a sermon. Forgive me. I'll try to make the next one shorter. Uh, I'd like to, to lead us in prayer if I can. But I don't want to just lead us in prayer. Well, I do. But I want you to join me in prayer. I don't want you to sit and simply listen to what I pray. But I want you to be praying in your heart with me. Will you pray with me, please? God, today we pray. We pray that we would help us, God. Help us to humble ourselves. Lord, there is a part of us where there is pride and we don't like humbling ourselves. But help us, God, to humble ourselves. Help us, God, to seek you above all things. Because there's nothing in this world that can satisfy the inner longing of our hearts. Only you can do that.
helps to seek you above all things. God, help us to be willing to repent whatever it is we need to repent of. Whether it's self-righteousness or it's just really, really ugly unrighteousness. Help us, God, to be willing to repent. Search us, Holy Spirit. Search our hearts and our minds. Help us, God, to repent of any and every idol of the heart. God, help us to fill us with your Spirit. Move in us. Work in us. God, I thank you that you are doing a good work in us. And you will never quit and you will never give up on any of us. God, I pray that you would help us to really love our neighbor, all kinds of neighbors, regardless of where they come from, what color their skin is, or how they vote. Whether they have an accent in their voice, or whether they talk exactly like us, God, help us to love them. Lord, I pray for revival. I pray for revival. Pray for revival. In my life. I pray for revival in the life of every person in this room. I pray for that. I pray, God, for revival in our church and churches across the country. I pray for revival to spread from where we see it at Asbury and Sanford. I pray that it will spread from church to church and school to school. And I pray for spiritual awakening in our community and communities all across the country. God, I pray for a turning from sin, a turning to you. God, only you can do that. And, Lord, help us to be willing to do whatever we need to do to prepare ourselves for it. And I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Um, It's real interesting. I told you I was listening to the message from the young man at the chapel service at Asbury. He comes from a, uh, a Wesleyan holiness background. I come from a very, very rigid uh, kind of uh, dispensationalist, fundamentalist uh, so Baptist, we won't call ourselves Baptist background. Um, and it's really interesting is that when he preached his message, he was a lot more, sounded a lot more Baptist. I think I sounded maybe a little bit more Pentecostal. So uh, it's just, you know, my heart, uh, my heart feels this does. Uh, it does. Um, let's take a moment, pause. We can do that. And uh, what I'd like you to do is We prayed about loving our neighbor. I'd like you to take a moment and love your neighbor. Okay? Can you just take a moment and uh, greet the people around you, and then we'll get back on this, and I will significantly shorten my message. Famous last word. Yeah.
I, Jim, if I can get the mic, if you can turn it up a little bit more there. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. All right, guys, I missed everything up this morning, so we're, we're cutting a song. I apologize. Uh, <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I really felt like I needed to just kind of speak to you a little bit about that. And, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, there's some good in that for you. Uh, today we're going to begin a brand new series. So I'm trying to find where I'm at in my Bible real quick. Uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, we're starting a brand new series called Thriving in Babylon. And I'll explain what that means and why and how that's important. You know, we live in a world where, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but we live in a world where uh, certain aspects of being a Christian um, are sometimes held in fairly low regard. Okay, there was a long season in American history where um, Christianity... Even if people did not really follow Jesus, they were still friendly to the idea of Jesus. Even if they did not believe in the Bible, they believed in truth. They believed, uh, even if they were immoral, they believed in a standard of morality. And uh, they believed that some things were morally right and some things weren't. And, um, and, and, um, and so there are aspects of what we believe that are becoming more and more unwelcome in our world. So if I say that truth is absolute instead of relative, there are some people who are like, well, who gives you the right to make that declaration? I would say, well, I have no right to make that declaration, but it's God who declared it, so I simply declare what I understand God to declare. Uh, there, you know, to say that there's one and only one way to God, and it's through, uh, through faith in Jesus, there's some people who are very offended by that and say, well, wait a second, you should be accepting of all religions. And I'll just tell you, when you read through the Bible, the Bible was never, it's not like uh, Moses said, oh, you can worship the gods of the Egyptians and you can worship the gods of the Canaanites and you can worship the gods of the Babylonians. It didn't say that all these different religions are really trying to, they are all true paths to God. Uh, you don't see that. You don't see that. And so, but there are aspects of what we believe that people will find offensive. And the reason that that's true is because you live in Babylon. Did you know that? You are living in Babylon. You're like, no, Gary, I live in the United States of America, and I'm telling you, no, you live in Babylon. You live in Babylon. We all do, all right? That, that, that actually, according to the Bible, you're actually living in exile. You are. You are exiled here. This is not your home. The Bible says in, in Philippians chapter 3.20 is that our citizenship is in heaven. That's a very significant verse, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven. Why? Because Philippi, citizenship in Philippi meant something. If you were a citizen of Philippi, you were a Roman citizen with all the rights of a Roman citizen. But when Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, your citizenship, by the way, the word for citizenship is the same word we get our word political from. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's not, it's not Philippi. It's not Fairfield. It's not the United States. 
we are, according to Peter, in First Peter and Second Peter, we are exiles. We are living in exile. We are chosen by God, living in exile, to live for Him. What I want to do is I want to talk with you about thriving in exile. How do you do that? How do you do that? And, and let me give you a little bit of background, and we're going to dive in, and we're going to read Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to try to make my, my points real fast, okay? So, so God had, had chosen Israel to be his people, his holy kingdom, his holy nation. They were to be a nation of priests, meaning that they were to represent the one and only God to all the peoples of the world. That was their intended purpose. You read this as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see this, is that they were, that, that Judaism was supposed to be a very missionary religion, bringing a message to all peoples that there's one true God. Um, and God had told them, hey, if you keep the covenant, the agreement, the covenant I have made with you, if you keep this covenant, you're going to experience incredible blessing. You won't have weeds in your lawn. You won't. You, you won't have dry rot on your house. You won't get rust on your cars. Actually, there are things in that say something kind of similar to that in the ancient world. Is Your harvest is going to be plentiful. You will have children you will not miscarry. You will have uh, just the right amount of rain, not too much, not too little. You will have uh, bountiful crops. In fact, you'll be able to take a year off from farming every seven years, and I will give you so much. In that year, it will last you for three years. The Bible says that. He says, I'm I'm just going to bless you immensely and pour out my goodness on you in overwhelming measure. It's going to be like heaven on earth. You just have to follow me, worship me, keep my covenant, be a blessing to the nations. That was the covenant with Abraham. Through you, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And they were to live this covenant agreement. But then what happened was, God said this, but if you do not keep my covenant, it's going to be really bad. There will be no rain. You will become fearful. You will run in terror at the blowing of a leaf. You will, uh, your, your crops won't produce. You will, uh, your enemies will prevail over you. Uh, and if you still refuse to, dis, to, to obey me and humble yourselves and keep the covenant with me, uh, you will devour your own children because you're starving and dying. And then ultimately, you're going to be carried away to a land of captivity. Guess what Israel did? They broke the covenant. They began to worship idols. They began to deny justice to the fatherless. They denied justice to the widow. They denied justice to the poor and to the alien, the foreigner. They denied justice. They followed, they became, um, they, they practiced every form of sexual immorality. They began to worship other gods like Moloch, where they would take baby children and they would put them on this like a griddle that was superheated and burn them, their children to death. 
they began to do things that were just despicable. They began to follow the very practices that the Canaanites who had inhabited the land before them practiced. They did all of that. And so God sent He sent prophets to them over and over and over again. Repent. Repent. Return to me. Put away your idols. Follow me. Keep my commands. And over and over and over again, he sent more and more prophets. And for hundreds of years, the people of Israel refused to obey. The northern part of the kingdom of Israel was carried away in captivity by the Assyrians, a a very vicious, vicious people. They were carried away into captivity, 722 B.C. And then ultimately, in 605 B.C., the Babylonians came in and conquered uh, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And they they came first in 605 B.C. again in, I can't remember, like 598 maybe, And then again, I think in 587, it was three successive waves of carrying away the people of Judah. Very, very fascinating. Jeremiah 29, some of you know Jeremiah 29. Really interesting stuff there. But but God uh, told the people that they would be carried away into captivity in, in Babylon for 70 years. From the time of 605 B.C., when Daniel was carried away, until the restoration, the first wave. Actually, the people of Israel actually came back in three different waves. And the first wave came almost exactly uh, 70 years after 605 B.C. And the last wave uh, came and rebuilt the temple. The temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. And it, it, it was reconstructed almost exactly 70 years later. Very, very fascinating. You can read all this in your, your Bible, Okay. Uh, but but we are right now, it's 605 B.C. It's 605 B.C. And I want you to, to read with me. And, and I'm reading here from Daniel chapter 1. And I'm just going to kind of read it all the way through and hit the points kind of fast. Okay? So I may not read this super well. I'll do my best. All right? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that would be 605 B.C. Okay? In, in, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. By the way, this kind of happens immediately after the Battle of Carchemish when um, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptians and what was left of the Assyrian Empire. And on their way back to Babylon, they come to Syria and Palestine, and they come to Jerusalem, and they invade there, and they besiege the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 says this, And the Lord delivered, underline those words, The Lord delivered. Who delivered? The Lord. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That is significant. It's not Nebuchadnezzar who defeats Jehoiakim. It is not the gods of Babylon who gives Judah into the hands of Babylon. It is the Lord. Why would the Lord do that? It was in keeping with his covenant. Remember the covenant God made with his people? If you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, if you don't worship me, your enemies will carry you away. This is simply the fulfillment of what the Lord had told them. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Oh, they even carried away the temple articles. By the way, 
uh, this, it says, these he carried off to the temple, his temple, the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put into the treasure house of his God. See, see, because the quote unquote from a Babylonian perspective, the gods of the Babylonians have defeated the God of Judah. And so we're going to take all the articles used in the worship of Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, and we're going to put them in the temple of our God. This is significant. It's going to come back to us in Daniel chapter 5. All right? These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put into the treasure house of his God. Then the king... That's Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men. Oh, young men, they're probably, these are like teenagers, 15, 16 years old. Young men without any physical defect. These are good looking guys. No physical defect. Handsome. Showing aptitude for every kind of learning. They're smart. Okay? You've got to be good looking and smart to have a place in Babylon. Kind of like America. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now understand, these young men are being taken away from everything that's familiar to them. They're taken away from their country. They're taken away from their families. They're taken away from everything. And they're deported to Babylon. wonder what's going to happen to them. You know, it's interesting. When kids leave home and go away to college, they leave the influence of home. Many times they leave the influence of the church they grew up in. And a lot of times they leave Jesus. Did you know that? Did you know that happens? It does. wonder what's going to happen to these guys. They're carried away to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them. That's the chief uh, official, Ashpenaz. He was to teach them. He was to teach these these uh, Israelite young men, these uh, these Jewish young men. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They are getting the best that Babylon has to offer. We're going to give all these 16-year-old boys a brand new Tesla. We're going to give them fantastic food. We're going to put them in a university setting that is the best university setting in our world today. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael Azariah. By the way, each of these names honors the Lord God of Israel. Daniel means, I think, God is judged, something like that. Um, Hananiah means, I can't remember. Mishael, I think, means who is like God. Um, Azariah means, I don't know, something about the Lord. I can't remember. Anyway, but each of their names honor the Lord. They honor the Lord God of Israel. The chief official gave them new names. By the way, the new names no longer honor the Lord God of Israel. They honor the gods of the Babylonians. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food. What was wrong with this food? We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. 
Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. You know, if I don't give you the food the king told me to give you, and if you're not looking as strong and fit as the other guys, I'm going to lose my head. By the way, when he says I'm going to lose my head, he meant he was going to lose his head. Literally. The official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He says, please test your servants for ten days. He comes up here with a little bit of a creative problem-solving idea. Test your service for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he, the guard, agreed to this, tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier, literally, Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, they looked fatter, okay? This is not the Daniel diet. This is not about dieting. The guys look fatter, okay? Um, at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young young men... God gave knowledge. Who gave knowledge? God. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, at the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. So he's ushering in the young men. The king talked with them. He interviews each of them. The king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's servants. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better, that is idiom, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. By the way, when was Daniel carried away? All right, Jackie got it right. You win the prize. 605 B.C. 605 B.C. And, and, and how long was he there? First year of Cyrus, 539 B.C. About 66 years. Okay? Shortly before that 70 year, the end of the 70 years. Um, a lot of really interesting things in Daniel that I can geek out about. And I will try not to do what I did on Friday night. Um, let, let me just give you, let's, let's talk about some major takeaways here. Okay, major takeaways. Number one, we need to trust in the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. If you're going to thrive in this world here that you live in, you have to be able to trust. You have to be able to trust in the sovereign. You know what sovereign means? 
God is like awesomely in charge. You know what that means? I'm not in charge. God does nothing on your timetable or my timetable. He doesn't. God does nothing my way or your way. He does it His way. You want it your way? Go to Burger King. You want it God's way? Come to Jesus. All right? Um, we need to trust the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. Um, I'm going to read for you three different verses here. Well, let me just do this. Uh, so th- we, we need to trust in the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In, in chapter 1, verse 2, and I have this from the ESV Bible because the ESV is a little bit more clear on this than is the NIV. Both are great translations. But the ESV says this, and the Lord, what? Gave. You see that? It's right there. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and with some of the vessels of the house of God. Who's in charge here? Is Jehoiakim in charge? Is Jehoiakim sovereign? How about Nebuchadnezzar? Is Nebuchadnezzar in charge here? Is he sovereign? By the way, Nebuchadnezzar dies. Daniel serves through several different kings, Babylonian kings, and then serves Cyrus, king of Persia, who conquers the Babylonians. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, uh, along with some of the vessels of the house of the... Uh, that, that, that we need to trust the sovereign hand of God. God gave Daniel and his friends favor and compassion. God gave. God, who gave? God. The Lord gave, God gave. God gave Daniel favor. I love this word. Hebrew words, kesed or hesed, depending upon who you hear it pronounced by. He gave him favor. Kesed, hesed. I like the New Testament idea of grace. Sometimes we experience grace through people. Did you know that? I have experienced so much grace through my life. Um, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, the chief official. Uh, We need to trust in the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. God gave Daniel. God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding and all the literature and wisdom of the Babylonians. The, the, the Bible verse here says, uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 17 says, As for these four youths, God gave them. God gave them. He gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So what we need to see is we need to be able to see the sovereign hand of God. And we need to be able to trust in the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that He is awesomely, outrageously in charge. Nothing apart, or excuse me, nothing happens apart from His permission. Sometimes we want to think way too much of ourselves and our accomplishments. If you have any accomplishment in your life, it would be non-existent apart from God. Did you know that? Nothing. By the way, 
Some of us, we think way too little of what God can do in us. Did you know that? There's some people who feel like, well, God can never do that through me. Nothing's too difficult for the Lord. Um, the second thing you need to see here, we, we, well, first is we need to trust the sovereign hand of God to thrive in Babylon. But secondly, we need holy resolve to thrive in Babylon. Where do I see this in the text? Uh, verse 8 says, but Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Do you see those words in your Bible? He resolved not to defile himself. There is resolve, but it is a holy resolve not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. Now, I can get really lost on this, and I want to be careful not to get lost on this. What was it about the food that that defiled would have defiled Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The truth is, we really don't know. Now, some people believe possibly it's because some of the food was ceremonially unclean. Uh, so, if you were eating according to Jewish dietary law, I'm sorry, but you can't have lobster. I'm sorry, but you can't have shrimp. I'm like really, really sorry, but you can't have catfish. You can't have bacon. You can't have pork chops. You can't have ham. What's the use of living? So some people believe maybe it was that. Other people, but the only problem with that is that wine was perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable. It wasn't forbidden at all. Um, some people believe, well, this food had been sacrificed to idols. That's very possibly true. The only thing is, what would have prevented them from also sacrificing the, the, the vegetables and grain also to idols? Because it was used in their worship as well. There were grain offerings. In, there were even grain offerings in, in Jewish worship in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, it, it, you know, some, you know it's, I heard one teacher who said something to the effect of that his belief in, in it could be true, but we don't really know for sure. It's possible. It's possible. It could be that, that they were saying, hey, we don't want to eat the best that the king has to give and offer when the rest of our people are denied these things. So it was a way of showing solidarity with the rest of God's people. It, it could be any one of those things. It could be all those things or none of those things. The important thing is to understand this, is that Daniel and his friends, they resolved not to defy themselves. Now, for you and me, you don't have to worry about food defiling you. The Bible, Jesus says in the New Testament, it's not what enters the body in the way of food that defiles you. It's what's in your heart. It's what comes from within that defiles you. And so, and so, uh, the things that, that defile you according to Jesus, uh, and this is in your notes, uh, in, in your notes it says this, that, that what defiles you, and these are the words of Jesus, um, in, in Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23, Jesus says this, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. What comes out of a person? Uh, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. See, evil thoughts defile us. What kind of evil thoughts? Well, sexual morality. Theft. Withholding from another person what rightfully belongs to them. That's theft. Um, Theft. um, Murder. Murderous thoughts, 
Adultery. Adultery begins in the heart. Greed. An attachment to material things that displaces the place of God in our lives. Greed. Malice. Deceit. Not telling the whole truth. Telling just enough of the truth uh, that gives us the slant that we want with other people. Lewdness. Envy. Being resentful at how God has blessed someone else. You know, as a pastor, I can envy the blessing of God in another church if I'm not careful. Did you know that? I can. We envy how God has blessed our friend who has maybe a nicer home, a nicer car. Not me. I got a really nice 22-year-old rodeo. I like it. Um, you know, it, it can be envy, it can be, according to Jesus, it can be uh, slander, it can be arrogance, folly. All these evils, says Jesus, come from inside and defile a person. You know, there are things in our culture, you, you know what it means to defile something? It means to take something that's good and make it bad, make it shameful. You know, a really good example of this in our culture is pornography. Pornography, really, really good example in our culture. See, see, sex, sex is is wonderful and it is good. There's nothing shameful about sex. There's nothing shameful about being male or female. There's nothing shameful about God bringing the man and the woman together. In Genesis chapter two, naked and unafraid. See, sex is supposed to be a place of, it's supposed to be an act of intimacy with two people making a lifetime commitment to one another. Nothing shameful about that. Now, some of us, we have really been injured in this area of our lives. Some of you, I know, uh, have gone through very, very painful experiences. Maybe someone touched you with an unholy, unhealthy touch. Or maybe you've engaged in activity that you know goes against what God has given us. And for you, this one I want you to know is that there's cleansing and you can be set free from all shame. Did you know that? That's what God wants to do for you. There are defiling influences in our culture. And there are times where we need to have holy resolve not to be defiled by those influences in our culture. Um, by the way, it takes holy resolve not to defile ourselves. This is in your notes. And it takes the Holy Spirit to empower holy resolve. Okay? You don't get holy resolve by white-knuckling it. You get holy resolve as you walk by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The Bible doesn't say, if you try really hard, you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. The Bible doesn't say, if you try really, really hard. This is as you walk by the Spirit. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Uh, Number three, we need humility and holiness to thrive in Babylon. We, I'm not talking about being holier than thou. A lot of Christians... People who call themselves Christians are really good at being holier than thou. By the way, 
That's not a mark of following Jesus. That's a mark of following the way of the, the Pharisees. We need humility and holiness to thrive in Babylon. Where do I see humility and holiness here? Well, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food, verse 8. And then he, so he asked the chief official for permission. See, there's, there is humility in his holiness. He doesn't say, hey, there ain't no way you're going to make me eat that food. That's not the sign of being holy. That's the sign of being an arrogant idiot. Never confuse being obnoxious with being holy and being humble. We don't need any obnoxious Christians. We really don't. Uh, So if if that's true in your life, I'm just going to tell you, if there's grace for you, there is, there's grace for you. You can be cleansed of the shame of being obnoxious. But you have to repent, turn to Jesus. Um, to thrive in Babylon, we need humility and holiness to thrive. Number four, we need wisdom and creative problem solving to thrive in Babylon. And when Daniel comes up with a crazy idea of, you know, I don't want to eat this food, and I call it a crazy idea because, you know, for, for Ashpenaz, it means, well, if I withhold this food from you, and the king sees you looking like, you know, not doing as well as everybody else, I pay for it with my head. So what does Daniel do? He says, test us for 10 days. You see that? Test us for 10 days. He just uses a little bit of wisdom and creative problem solving. Test us for 10 days. And then he says this, and do according to what you see. Um, He comes up with a little bit of creative problem solving. Uh, the outcome, ten days later, they look better than everybody else. Ten days later, they look better than everybody else. The outcome, God gave them knowledge and understanding and the knowledge and the wisdom of the Babylonians. God gave Daniel wisdom to understand visions and dreams. At the end of the set time, At the end of the set time, Daniel and his friends are presented before the king. The king interviews them, and they enter the service of the king. And no one is found to be equal with Daniel and his three friends. They were ten times better. That's kind of like Hebrew for saying they were pretty awesome. Uh, Daniel serves. He serves from basically 605 or three years later, 602 B.C., until uh, the first year of King Cyrus, 539 B.C., 66 years. 66 years after carried away in captivity. God's, um, this is a little thing. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on back up. Um, God's faithfulness proved sufficient. I, I just, I, I'm going to read something to you. This is from the English Standard Version Bible, uh, the the. The study Bible, it's one of the study notes. I I like this. It just says, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. God is faithful. Okay, one thing that you need to see in the book of Daniel is this. God is faithful. God's faithfulness proved sufficient. 
See, God's faithfulness never fails. God's faithfulness never fails. God's faithfulness proved sufficient for Daniel throughout the 70 years of his exile. Babylonian kings came and they went. The Babylonians were replaced as the ruling world power by the Medo-Persian king, King Cyrus. Yet God sustained his faithful servant, Daniel. Uh, Over the next few weeks, we're going to look more at how to thrive in Babylon. Let me pray first and we'll worship. God, you are great. You are awesome. You are good. You are, you are awesomely in charge. You are sovereign. Lord, you are sovereignly in charge of everything. No king, no president, nobody comes to power apart from your permission. And God, you are able to humble anybody and everybody. With you, nations rise and nations fall. But your kingdom will never end. God, we worship you. Lord, teach us how to thrive in Babylon. Revive us, Lord, with your spirit. Teach us how to thrive in Babylon. Teach us to walk by your spirit. And not carry out the desires of the flesh. Teach us to have holy resolve. Teach us to be humble in holiness. To trust you. I pray this in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you, Gary. Some of my favorite things. Revival in the book of Daniel. Good day. Um, So, just want to point out to you a couple of announcements um, just so that you are aware coffee with the pastor wednesdays at four o'clock journey coffee on chad borden road um, for those of you that are curious about what coffee with the pastor is all about it's it's for anyone who wants to meet with one of our pastors for any reason so maybe you have a question you have a ministry idea maybe you just want to get out of the house and come connect and have coffee um, that's why they're there. So um, they want to be available to you. So if 4 p.m. on Wednesdays is not a good time, then they're happy to try to arrange something else. So just remember, coffee with the pastor, 4 o'clock, journey on Chadbourne Road. Next new member class on Sunday, March 5th, after church. So as we've been looking at the purpose-driven life and been reading through it, on day 17, hopefully you remember this. Um, it said, Paul, being a member of the church... Uh, To Paul, it meant being a vital organ of a living body, an indispensable and interconnected part of the body of Christ. The church is a body, not a building. The church is an organism, not an organization. When we say yes to following Jesus, we are given gifts, and gifts that make Um, make up this amazing functioning body that we call the church if you're interested in finding out what it means to be a member of Solana Valley Church Pastor Gary's is hosting a new members class after our worship service on Sunday March 5th and we'd be honored to have you join us and explore what that membership is all about about being a part of the body of Christ you can reserve your spot by signing up um, on the sign-up sheet uh, by the front door. And finally, worship through giving. Right now, we get to worship God with our giving. Worship at its core 
is loving God. And we not only can love God with how we live and how we speak and how we serve, but we can also love God with how we give. In 2 Corinthians 9-7, the Apostle Paul shares his letter to the church in Corinth with the following wisdom. He says, Is each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The church in Corinth was, they were uh, getting ready to present a financial gift to another church, and Paul was exhorting them to give cheerfully. Paul knew that a gift given reluctantly or under pressure wouldn't be given in the right spirit. So what he's saying is, um, you know, if they were going to give because everybody else was and they were feel, feeling guilty they, they, uh, that they weren't, that wasn't the reason to be giving. A cheerful giver reveals the life of someone who, was, who has put their full trust in God, believing he's a good father who loves to bless his children and enjoys watching his children bless others in return. A cheerful giver realizes that everything they have comes from God. And they're excited to give a portion of that back to God. We want to thank you for your generosity and for being willing to bless others. There are several ways that you can give, so just check out our website, www.slonavalley.org, or use the app. It's really easy. There's a Give button right on the app. But just thank you for your giving, and um, thank you for your faithfulness, because when we give out of what God has given us, it's worship. It's worship. So thank you, church, for being faithful in your giving. Let's stand together, church. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Give us this day a daily bread. Forgive us. Forgive us, and forgive the ones who sin against us, and give them. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us evil ones. Let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. Let in heaven.
your kingdom come. It's yours. It's yours. All yours. All yours. The kingdom, the power, the glory are yours. It's yours. It's yours. All yours. All yours. Forever and ever. The kingdom. It's yours. It's yours. The power, the glory are yours. It's yours, it's yours, all yours, all yours, forever and ever. The kingdom is yours. Father, let your kingdom come. Father, let your will be done. Earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Once again. Father, let you be done. Father, let you will be done. On earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. On earth, on earth as in heaven, right here in my heart. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. We'll see you next time. Have a great week.